Dartmouth-Hitchcock Health, this is The Cure, a podcast focused on the diagnosis, management, and prevention of COVID-19 in a practical and easily digestible format. I'm one of your hosts, Amog Karnik. I'm joined by my co-hosts, Marshall Ward and Jose Mercado. Our guest today is Dr. Lauren Gilstrap. Dr. Gilstrap is a heart failure and transplant cardiologist here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. She's also a health services researcher and serves as an assistant professor of medicine at the Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth. Thanks for joining us today, Lauren. I wanted to start our conversation off with some risk factors. If I'm a patient who have high blood pressure, diabetes, high cholesterol, and obese, why does that increase risk of severe disease in patients with COVID-19. First of all, thank you. Thank you, Jose, and, and everybody for the opportunity to join the podcast. The short answer is we're not really 100% sure. We know from the early epidemiologic data that came initially out of Wuhan and then the early Seattle experience that a history of cardiovascular disease confers about a 1.5 hazard ratio for mortality if somebody has COVID. And cardiovascular disease obviously is a bit of a bucket term, and it's entirely dependent on how you define it. Most of the time, that means something like you've had a heart attack, you carry a diagnosis of ischemic heart disease or heart failure or something like that. The lesser risk factors for cardiovascular disease, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, I think it's more just an overall marker of folks with multiple chronic illnesses. And sometimes people who have not had the ability to access the healthcare system, or even if they've been able to access it, they have haven't been able to take advantage of medicines, perhaps because of cost or because of other access issues. Maybe there are social or cultural or language barriers to their care. Other things going on, other sort of in in the world of research, we would call it unmeasured confounders, if you will. Things that are making these people at higher risk for bad outcomes, independent of anything else. And then you insert COVID into the situation. And of course, course, these people are going to have a higher rate of significant illness with COVID, much in the same way that these same risk factors confer a higher risk of poor outcomes if these patients experience any one of several different significant health events, like a heart attack or a diagnosis of cancer or things of that nature. So I think it's certainly true that they confer a higher risk of severe disease. They don't necessarily confer a higher risk of getting COVID. I don't think we have good data to substantiate that. And that's probably an important point to make. But when you look at these people that sort of about two weeks in get really sick when those curves diverge, it tends to be the people with more chronic illness at baseline. And I think if you are one of those people with high blood pressure, with diabetes, with high cholesterol, obesity, lung disease, anything like that, it's just a caution to you to take that extra step to make sure you're always wearing a mask, washing your hands, social distancing, being outside as much as you can, all the things that we've you know been doing for months and that we know. And as soon as a vaccine is available for you, I would highly encourage you to go ahead and get out there and get it. Thanks, Lauren. I think that makes sense. So we've heard a lot about the potential cardiac complications uh, or consequences of COVID. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how cardiac manifestations occur in the acute setting and what are the type of things that we would expect to see someone with COVID involving the heart? 
Yeah, so that's a great question. This was some of the stuff that particularly early on in the pandemic really scared people and, and really scared providers in particular because we weren't quite sure what we were dealing with. I, I'd say we probably need to divide it into two camps. And clinically, the first camp is really those folks who come in leaking troponin. And I think that needs to be divided from the group of people who manifest clinical heart failure. I think those two sort of are very different. Leaking troponin is almost never good in any circumstance, but the folks that leak troponin are not necessarily at the same degree of risk for poor outcomes that the folks who ultimately manifest symptoms of heart failure are. With troponin, most people will leak a little bit at the beginning and then it falls off very quickly. There are some people that leak some in the beginning and it's a much slow taper over days that the troponin comes down. And who we really worry about are those folks that who have a very early rise in the troponin and then it doesn't go down. If anything, it plateaus and or continues to rise, suggesting ongoing myocardial damage. Those are the folks that we really worry about. And that's what's been very closely associated with poor outcomes. Interestingly, hasn't been as well associated with either the development of heart failure or poor outcomes is the pro-BNP. For whatever reason in this context, it aligns a little bit less. I think when we generally interpret a pro-BNP, if it's super, super high, and that's very different from where the person was before, that of course confers a poor prognosis, but it's a little bit less of a linear relationship than I think we've seen uh, bear out with the troponin. And again, just like with an LDH, just like with a ferritin, just like with the IL-6s and these other things, the folks that do bad always have slightly higher levels than the folks who ultimately do well. And then it's right at that two-week mark where the folks who do ultimately very poorly, many of which don't ultimately survive, you see the spikes in the IL-6 and the ferritin and the LDH. And the troponin is one of those that will take off around that two-week mark. For the folks that sort of fall in that camp and go on to ultimately develop fulminant heart failure, that's associated with very poor prognosis. And you could look at it a couple of ways. If you look at all the people who get COVID, the percentage of them that get heart failure or a significant cardiac manifestation, that's actually pretty small. But if you get it, it confers a particularly poor prognostic sign. About 50 to 70% of the people that ultimately wind up passing away from COVID develop clinical signs and symptoms of heart failure at some point. And that's typically associated with a significant jump in that troponin level around week two, as well as a sort of chronically high pro-BNP that can also, but doesn't always take off around that two week mark as well. In terms of what's causing the myocarditis that we tend to see in COVID, nobody's 100% sure. You know, we wonder, and the initial suspicions in the field were that like with other cardiotropic viruses, you know, your parvoviruses, your coxsackies, things of that nature that directly attack the, the myocardium. The question was whether was coronavirus itself directly attacking the myocardium causing a big inflammatory action, lots of myocardial edema, lots of cardiac dysfunction. You know, we're not 100% sure because to my knowledge, I don't think anybody's quite isolated coronavirus in an endomyocardial biopsy sample. And it turns out actually that to meet very strict pathologic criteria for myocarditis caused by a virus, you actually have to, to do a number of fairly sophisticated pathologic things. I think the other potential mechanism is this gross inflammatory response that we see in folks who ultimately don't do well with COVID, again, around that two-week 
mark, is this just part of that? You've got this systemic inflammatory action, cytokines are swimming around all over everywhere, causing tons of inflammation, cellular leakage, your gap junctions are breaking down, all of those things. Are the cardiac manifestations that we're seeing as part of COVID actually not that dissimilar to the gross systemic inflammatory reaction that we're seeing overall? Either way, at the end of the day, you treat it like you treat heart failure, which is to say you, you try to manage the person's volume, keep them from essentially flooding their lungs, which are already typically in a fairly perilous state. There was initially a lot of controversy about whether or not to use ACE inhibitors based on the way the drugs work, and that's probably not worth getting into the nitty gritty of, but the consensus in the field right now is if somebody's on an ACE inhibitor and they're hemodynamically okay, you don't need to stop it. There's no evidence that starting it yet is going to be helpful in any way, but we have not proactively taken people off their ACE inhibitors or their ARBs if they're in a particularly high-risk group for COVID. And there were a number of position papers, an excellent piece published in the New England Journal at the tail end of 2020 that sort of dug into the mechanism of that. So you treat it like you treat heart failure. But again, it, it confers a fairly poor prognosis. And I think like the lung injury with COVID that can take weeks and weeks in its severe form to, to finally resolve, we're seeing not a dissimilar sort of pattern of illness with the cardiac manifestations. Awesome. Thank you. So when we do start thinking about patients who have recovered or made a recovery in a chronic setting, obviously this disease is still, we're still relatively new at understanding what's going on here. Now, almost at a year in, do we have any more information about what things look like chronically? Is there a post-COVID cardiac syndrome of some kind? And yeah, so undoubtedly you've heard and you've probably seen about what they're calling these COVID long haulers. These folks that just don't bounce back from COVID seven, eight, nine months later. I've seen a couple of these in real life. It is very much a real phenomenon. And I've seen it happen to very young, very active people. I can't give you a mechanism for that. I don't think anybody can in terms of the long-term prognosis for that, I don't think anybody knows that either. But that's certainly something that we're seeing. In cardiology in particular, there's some very interesting MRI data, much of which actually came out of Ohio State done by a former co-fellow of mine. Brilliant guy who had the very smart idea of MRIing otherwise healthy collegiate athletes who had been exposed to COVID, some of which had essentially asymptomatic disease and some of which had very significant disease. And a, a disturbingly high percentage of them, I think it was in the low teens, had MRI evidence of myocarditis. And what was particularly fascinating about this was many of them were the folks that didn't ever really manifest significant COVID symptoms. Guys who had tested positive for it never even knew they had it. And yet they've actually got MRI evidence of myocarditis. And what we don't know as a field is what in the world to do with that. Should I be starting these people on ACE inhibitors and beta blockers? Putting a 20-year-old guy on a beta blocker is not a minor thing. Trust me. We've all had that conversation, right? And is that going to do them any good? We don't actually know. Most of the time, they haven't dropped their ejection fractions. And so we don't actually really have an indication for doing that. But is there a theoretical benefit? That's separate and removed from the perhaps even more pressing issue of these guys are division one collegiate athletes. If you've got MRI evidence of myocarditis, should I let you play your D1 collegiate sport that you have a full ride to college for? Am I putting you at risk by allowing you to do that? Or am I being unnecessarily 
proactive, if you will, or unnecessarily restrictive in telling you that you can't. And when can I let you? Do I MRI you again in three months or six months? So these are all the questions that folks in the field are grappling with. And our sports medicine guys here in cardiology are working their way with sports medicine specialists across the country in dealing with this. And so I think particularly for younger people, some of these questions about what is this going to look like long-term, if anything, maybe it's all going to be disappeared by X time point after the illness, but what is this going to look like long-term? What, if any, implications will people have to be dealing with months and years down the line? I don't think we know, but I think it's a fascinating area of research. I agree. This is really interesting. You bring up some interesting questions and taking a step back a little bit to a broader perspective here and cardiovascular disease, how has COVID really impacted our ability to take care of patients with known cardiovascular disease or new onset cardiovascular disease? The short answer is we've been very lucky. We're in a rural area, and by virtue of being in a rural area, we've had the blessing of of a little bit more inherent social distancing than you get in the middle of New York City, for example. And so I think overall, particularly compared to urban environments, our caseload at any given time has been lower. Where it's strapping resources is much more on a practical level, which is if we are re-triaging other resources respiratory therapy support, nursing support, beds, ICU uh, level care toward COVID patients, how is that going to impact our ability to take care of STEMIs and acute heart failure decompensation and things like that? We've been fortunate initially in the course of the illness, like most hospitals, we went through a period of time where we weren't doing elective procedures in large part to not tie up beds, to not tie up nursing resources, to not tie up other just institutional resources. We haven't done that. We haven't had to do that for a period of time. And the idea is to try to save uh, as many resources as we can for the patients that need them. And in doing that, try to delay the elective things where we don't think anybody's going to incur a poor outcome if we delay things by a couple weeks or a couple months, allow the sort of more urgent things to go forward. And, And those decisions are very difficult to make very difficult to make in real time. I've been involved here with multiple conversations about the allocation of ECMO resources. So I'm the de facto, I'm one of the folks involved with the cardiogenic shock team. And we obviously put patients on VA ECMO when, you know, they have, you know, fulminant cardiogenic shock and are needing to be transferred to a transplant center for evaluation of transplant or VAT or things like that. We as an institution only have a a specific number of ECMO circuits, heart lung machines. As we are tying up more and more ECMO circuits with people that are getting predominantly VV ECMO. In the MICU, for example, what is that going to mean if we get a very late presentation of an anterior STEMI and fulminant cardiogenic shock who's under-supported on an impella CP and has increasing pressure requirement who I need to better support? We don't have answers to those questions. We've got policies and there are groups of very smart people at the physician level and the nursing level and the administration level and the respiratory therapy level just across the board trying to put guidelines in place for how to deal with this. Things change based on how busy or not busy the hospital is. And when we fill all of our ICU beds, a number of sort of emergency provisions kick in. We have not, we've been fortunate to not have reached that level yet, but things might change dramatically if and when we hit that point. I don't think we're unique uh, in doing this. I hope we're not unique in trying to think proactively about how to deal with these things. It's a very real conundrum. And I think at the end of the day, everybody's trying to do the greatest good for the greatest number of people, but figuring out exactly how to do that is a very challenging thing to do. And as a big referral center, the burden falls on us. And if we can't do it, 
nobody else can. So it's incumbent on us to find a way to step up and, and take our role. Thank you. You mentioned the difference a little bit between where we are here in a more rural setting versus the larger metropolitan areas. And early on and during the pandemic, there was an interesting phenomenon where hospitalizations for MIs decreased, myocardial infarctions decreased. What have we learned since March about what was going on during those early weeks, months of the, the pandemic and, and the incidence of MIs? Yeah. So this got quite a bit of popular press, made its way into the New York Times. Twitter was all abuzz with all of my very nerdy cardiology health services researcher friends about this. The initial theory, of course, was that people were scared to come into the hospital. They were scared they were going to get exposed to COVID. And so they were sitting at home and they were not ignoring their chest pain, but saying, it's it's probably the chicken wings. It's probably indigestion or whatever. I, I will say we at Dartmouth see a fair number of late presentations MIs anyway. I've seen more in my time at Dartmouth than I ever saw in the course of all of my clinical training in Boston. And I think some of that's cultural. I think by and large, we have a large population that we serve that really don't like coming to hospitals unless they have to. And so people tend to sit on symptoms perhaps for longer than they otherwise should, not to mention they're just physically further away from us than they are in an urban area. And so I think it's a number of those things. There was this concern that all of these people were sitting at home on their MIs, they were infarcting, there were going to be all these dead interior walls, and everybody come June, July, August was going to have an EF of 20%, and we were going to have this massive epidemic of heart failure coming out of the woodworks. I don't think we've had that. I haven't seen that described in the epidemiologic literature, thank goodness, by the way, and I haven't seen that clinically. You do always wonder uh, to what degree some of it, not all of it, because there certainly was a phenomenon of people being concerned about exposing themselves to the healthcare system. And I think with PPE, with all of the interventions that hospitals have taken, many of which have been really hard and really unpopular, I do think they've had the effect of making patients less concerned about coming into the hospital. My patients are not concerned, for example, to come to a clinic visit with me by and large now. And so I think time, I think community awareness and education, I think has laid a fair bit of that. And so overall, I'm encouraged. I'm not 100% sure we know exactly what happened. Not all MIs, as you guys well know, are created the same. There's the MI that's the troponin leak of 0.004. And there's the MI that's the tombstones in V1 through V for with acute pulmonary edema and cardiogenic shock. And so what I think we don't know is on that spectrum, what were the ones we were really missing? If we're missing the ones that are the tombstones, like that's going to be bad. That's going to catch up with us in the long run. If we're missing tiny little distal branches of such and such, and we take out five or 10 myocytes in the process, we're not picking up that slight elevation in the world's most sensitive troponin test ever maybe that's not the worst thing in the world. Certainly we want people to feel comfortable coming into the hospital. Certainly we want people to not sit on symptoms at home. Certainly we want people to you know, seek medical attention for chest pain. But hopefully if what we did miss early in the pandemic was more toward the, we'll call it less severe end of the spectrum, maybe the hope is that we won't quite see the longer term implications that we all worried about this with this massive surge in people presenting with fulminant heart failure and things like that. So my hope is that's what's going on. Only time will tell. Thank you, Lauren. So I did want to go back to uh, the vaccine and thank you for advocating uh, for our patients to be vaccinated. And my question is, which cohort of your cardiac patients are you really worried about and would want to advocate for? And what would be your message 
for those patients and for those primary care physicians uh, so that they could encourage them to get the vaccine? Yeah, so this is a, a difficult question to answer because it has both personal implications as well as public health implications, right? On one level, you want just people to get vaccinated. You want as many people to get vaccinated as quickly as you possibly can. As we talked about in the first part of this, those very common cardiovascular risk factors like hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, all of those things, not any one of those things puts you at markedly higher risk, but it's death by a thousand paper cuts. You get enough of them and then you add COVID to the top of it and it just topples the apple cart. So certainly anybody who has or has ever been really diagnosed with any of those conditions, certainly people who are taking medications on a daily basis for any of those conditions, those are the people that definitely need to be first in line in terms of getting the vaccine. The population I get asked most about is actually my population, which is the cardiac transplant population. So these are people that are chronically immunosuppressed. And while I'm sure you guys know, we can't give certain vaccines to these populations. And this applies not only to cardiac transplant patients, it applies to the larger swath of transplant patients, as well as to patients that are immunosuppressed for any reason. So now you're starting to bring in people that are on chronic RA drugs, people that are on drugs for Crohn's disease, people that are on various chemotherapy agents and things like that. The short answer is every situation is a little bit unique and folks should definitely talk with their physicians about it. By and large, this is not a live vaccine though. That's the take-home point. Unlike the Zostavax, which is one of the vaccines for shingles, which I can't give to a transplant patient because it's a live vaccine, this is not a live vaccine. This is an mRNA-based vaccine. And while we don't have a lot of data, the consensus and the feeling in the field, at least for folks who have had cardiac transplants, absolutely the potential for benefit outweighs the potential for risk. They are absolutely a high-risk group. They should absolutely get vaccinated. Thank you. That was awesome. All right. So thank you very much, Lauren, for joining us today. This was really a great discussion and we certainly learned a lot. So thank you. Absolutely. Take care. Have a good one. Thanks. Bye. Here are some of my take-home points. Individuals with chronic illness are at higher risk for severe disease and should get the vaccine or continue to follow mitigation strategies. Patients with acute COVID-19 and have evidence of ongoing myocardial damage or present with fulminant heart failure may lead to poor outcomes. Young individuals with relatively mild acute COVID-19 symptoms have been found to have persistent inflammation of the heart muscles. This is considered a manifestation of post-acute COVID-19 syndrome. As always, all materials discussed here are for medical education and should not be taken as medical advice. Thank you all for listening and we'll talk to you soon.